This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and Devin, David Moore. My old friend, Devin Moore. Devin Moore. Well, <laughs> well close enough. You know, I think at this point in your life, it's time for you to maybe change, right, David? Branch out. Yeah, branch out. <laughs> it's been suggested to me I should change based on my uh, body and work and who I am. So <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Okay, cool. All right, and, and Evan, how's it going? Oh, great. It's good to see you, Kerwin, and you too, Dante. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had a Seder over at uh, at Evan's house, David. And, uh, nice. Nice. The highlight of it was when uh, the dog got up on the table. Uh, that was I didn't I did not realize that I, I'm trying to you know I have a, a lot of Jewish friends and I, and I, I did the first not time realize, you've ever had a dog for the seder. Well, I didn't realize that was part of the ritual. You know, I, I thought so. Is this is this how that works? So then at this point, the dog gets up on the table and then you know and then and dances. Yeah, it's uh, it, <laughs> dances. Uh, part really, of the part of the tradition. I, honestly, I I didn't know it was part of the tradition either, but. At some point in time, when the dog did jump up on the kid's table and started inching his way across the table towards one of the other guests, who shall remain nameless, um, <laughs> it was uh, it was quite it was quite the uh, quite the, the visual. But it was um, it was nice it, to have uh, some people over for a Passover dinner. We didn't really do anything too. Uh, we didn't go heavy into the Jewishness, except for some of the foods. Um, lovely it way. was it was a lovely experience. We enjoyed it very much. The food was great. The company was great, except for that person you didn't want to mention. And then, uh, uh, and then, and well, even think, the dog. The dog. I great. think I know who that person is, but please go ahead if you don't. Okay. Uh, so so dog, anyway, that was it was nice. The table. When the dog got on the table, it, it is I, what people don't know is. This is the way, this is kind of the surprise of, of a Jewish dinner is when a dog gets on the table, that's the signal for everything to break up. You, you would be, you know, you're, you're surprised it's not part of a cliche. Well, it's just like when the dog gets on the table, you know, uh, then, it's, then it's time to go or whatever. That's, that's what that that lady has sung, the dog has gotten on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I read a whole story about the origin of the, the, when the fat lady sings, and then we we canned that story. You know, politically incorrect. Should have taken that as a hint. Very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. It's a good story too. Um, so uh, so speaking of uh, uh, what we did over the weekend, uh, I uh, I went out to the to the Mavericks game on Sunday. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> man, oh man, oh man. Uh, I have. I'm going to tell you something, David. Now you've probably seen a lot more bad NBA uh, games than I have, but that ranks right up there um, for me. Uh, number number one, 
especially when they when they were just getting pounded to start the game and they were down by like oh I don't know thirty and Jason Kidd still had all his t- timeouts. You know, it was <laughs> it was it was one of those situations where Marquise Morris was the starting center, and that just kind of told you all you needed to know about where this game was going. The uh, valets had already pulled all the cars up for the players, and they were, wanted to go with the running clock just to get the season over as quickly as possible, which, of course, management's decision to end the season before it was actually done is one that is going to uh, reverberate and have, I, I think, significant repercussions for this Mavericks organization in the offseason. How so? Well, if you remember... The Mavericks are a repeat offender here. Uh, yeah. Mark Cuban was fined $600,000 five years ago for going on a podcast after the season and conceding that, well, of course we were tanking. Now, that was the draft where they got Luca, So I think he was probably fine with paying that $600,000 fine. Um, but this one, this was just so blatant. Um, and from the standpoint, because look, I, I've seen some people try to minimize it by saying, well, look, look how many teams in this league are tanking. They just, but they started weeks ago. That's different than going into the final two games. Say you're playing to win. You release your injury report. Here's the key to me. There, there are several keys that the league's going to focus on. Plus the fact, the context that Mark Cuban and this organization or repeat offenders in this, uh, that early that morning, that Friday morning before the game, they issued a, uh, an injury report where all of the players were probable. None were ruled out. 15 minutes later, the club sent out another release going, oh, our bad, these five players are out. Um, within a 15-minute span, and then at the game that night, when asked specifically about it, Jason Kidd made it clear that uh, when pressed on it, well, you'll have to talk to Nico and Mark Cuban. It was their decision, and it was like, were you part of the discussions? No. Okay, but so, how are you going to reverberate with, with the, within the organization? Within the organization? Um well, I, I would say, first of all, everyone's talking about, oh, what's the fine going to be? You know what? I don't think people have paid enough attention to what the fine could be. What would be, given that this franchise has done it before, given clearly what their stated goal was by doing this and the fact they achieved it, given the commissioner's powers, what could Commissioner Adam Silver do and be justified? He could take this pick away from the Mavericks. And I don't think people are given enough attention to that being a possibility uh, and a possible outcome of this, because to discourage this sort of blatant behavior, which went national, uh, was a huge stain on the league and has everyone talking about this, uh, and the fact he's done it before, just a blatant disregard uh, for the competitive balance. Um, yeah, I, I think taking away this lottery picks that they gained by this maneuver would be justified. Now, will the NBA go that far? Uh, certainly Mark Cuban would not take that quietly. You could, you know, there would be a very strong response by him, potential lawsuits, uh, all of that. But I, I think it's on the table for discussion. I really do. Kevin, do you uh, think we, that's realistic? I think it's, I think it's certainly possible. Uh, you know, for that matter, you can take away the franchise. 
You know, you have to have, a, I think it's a two thirds vote of the board of governors to do that. But yeah, they're, they're, the possibilities here are pretty expansive. Now, I, I don't think that they will take that away, but I, because of, uh, and Cuban wins. Well, then Cuban wins. <laughs> and, and this was justified. You know, yeah, I mean, my well, whole point was any kind of fine here, financial, it's not going to matter to Mark. I mean, it, this is just a, this was about getting the pick. And if they don't, and that's my point about the draft pick. Uh, right. He was fined 600,000 before, didn't blink. You can find him up to a million on this. Okay. So what? You can suspend him from being the face of the franchise for X number of months if you want to do that. Um, and remember, it's not like the, the Mavericks organization hasn't had other issues that the league hasn't looked at, which as far as their whole culture uh, of the organization, which which led to uh, Sint Marshall being brought in as, as president. You know, I think it's interesting, David, you, you talk about Mark as the uh, face of the franchise. And I, I don't want to spend too much on this because we need to get into kind of the particulars of what happened. But, you know, he's a little more scarce these days than he used to be. Um, it's a little bit like the the process that Jerry Jones went through. Remember when back in the day, Jerry was always around. You could get him anytime you wanted him, you know, and then he had the Tuesday luncheons, you know, and, and he showed up at all that. And, and, and then over the years, it got more and more difficult. You know, now he does his radio shows during the week and he, he makes himself available after the game, obviously, but that's it. Um, it used to be that at every game, you know, and I always thought this was the most demeaning thing. Mark would get up on his stairmaster, and then the media would all stand around him. You know, so he's like on his throne, and he's sweating all over. He would you. drip sweat on your notebook while you uh, were, was, because you, you had know, to get so, that close to listen to him. I always thought, thought, you know, is it really necessary for you to be doing this now? Okay, couldn't you have done this stairmaster this morning? Uh, do you have to do it for us now? It, it was like his way of saying, "Yeah, I'll make myself available, but." This is what you're going to have to put up with me sweating all over you. Uh, so at any rate, but he, he doesn't do that anymore, though. So and uh, so he doesn't go on all the road trips anymore. Uh, he's he's a little bit more withdrawn, essentially, since uh, Nico Harrison took over as a, as the uh, general manager. I don't know if this was is purposeful on his part to make it seem like he's not usurping Nico's power, because that was always the question with him, him and Donnie, who's really in charge here. Everybody well, everybody knew that, that Mark was really in charge, but it was still not a not a good look. And and I just wonder now if maybe he's doing this to make it seem more like, you know, Nico is the guy actually in charge of, of basketball decisions. So you're trying to pin the uh, throw the final two games on Nico, not on Mark? Yes. You don't think right. he was it's the driving on, force behind this? on Nico, yeah. Well, but, but again, that, that very quickly, this for the Jerry Jones comparison, here's the other. Yeah, Jerry Jones has has backed off from the day to day, certainly over time. And there are appearances Mark Cuban is doing the same now. Uh, but is there any doubt that they can insert themselves and take over the process at any point they want and they do that? Both men are impulsive and in control that way. So Cuban can lay out and you cannot see him for a month, but then he's going to pop up and go, well, Luca, look, I know you want to play, but look, I got to think I'm willing to deal with you being unhappy uh, for a little bit here versus being unhappy two years from now when we don't have a, a you know good players around you. But uh, now let's go back and look at that impulsiveness. Look, what sort of continuity does this franchise have and what it's built around? You know, this franchise has had two premier players 
or going from one to another over a long period of time and Dirk Nowitzki and then to Luka Doncic. And over the last 12 years, one or both of those players have been part of the franchise. How many times in those 12 years have they advanced past the first round of the postseason? Once. Once. And, yeah. and the team that did, they allowed its second best player to go because they didn't properly identify his talent level when they had him here. And, you know, they, they just kind of spun out of control all season. Yes, they did. Um, all right. So, David, let's let's look at these things here real quick. Like I want to cover a lot of topics um, here as we as we go along. Uh, so number one uh, is the number one priority figuring out what to do with uh, Kyrie Irving. Yeah. And and to me, this, this is really interesting because when we talked about when the trade was made, not just us, I think everybody agreed with there is much more risk than there is reward to this move. But the one reward everyone was willing to concede was, well, look, this does make them a better team for the second half of the season and improves their playoff odds this year, right? So, okay, if you want to look at it from that standpoint, let's go from there and see how it works. And now even that blew up in their face. But for them to make the move they did, finish the season the way they did, end the season with that scarring decision, which I think would impact some fans going forward as far as their loyalty to the franchise and how much they should buy in. Um put all that together and then to be unable to retain Kyrie Irving and go back to, to ground zero when you're trying to build this thing up, that would be disastrous in my mind. I, I don't see any scenario. If he doesn't sign, I don't want to hear about the cap money they have and all of this. All If you have a lot of cap money and you don't have a player, all it means is you have to overpay for the player you're going to get in here to justify bringing a player in, but you're going to pay him beyond what his talents are because you have to make a move. And that's the position in my mind that the Mavericks are in if Kyrie Irving uh, doesn't come back. So here's the issue for me. Obviously, it's, it's a couple of things. One, uh, so you decide you want Kyrie Irving back. They, they will, I think they want him back. The question is, is how long do they want him back? Do they, can you, you know, giving him a five-year max deal just seems to me uh, no way would I do that. No way would I give him a five-year deal. I, you know, they can give him a four-year deal, and that's what anybody else can give him as well as a four-year deal. That's the best that anyone else can do. Um, I'm not convinced that Kyrie Irving is in a position where he can command that kind of contract. Now, it only takes one team, right, to yeah. do that. Uh, and you don't have to have, you know, five or six competitors, just one. Uh, for all I know, you know, LeBron James is, is talking, you know, to management uh, with the Lakers and, and trying to set that all up right now. Uh, Brad Towns and I were talking about it at the game Sunday and, and uh, we were saying, you know, I, I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility. If he didn't get what he wanted, he, he takes a one-year deal from the Lakers uh, and, and and obviously we would improve that product uh, immediately uh, because of the upgrade there. And, and if they win it all, then he, then he gets a contract, you know, the kind of contract he wants. I think he still has something to prove, you know, none of this. I, I don't want to blame any of what happened on Kyrie Irving. Does you know, Kyrie Irving believe he still has something to prove? Well, that's a great question. You know, I don't know. Who knows what goes through his mind? You don't uh, want to lay any of this on Kyrie Irving? Is that what you said? No, not really. I mean, look, uh, from all from all accounts and all the players, they all loved him. 
They, they thought he was a good teammate. He was uh, cooperative. He was, uh, you know, good in the locker room. He was good on on the bench. He's good on the floor. Guys, these young guys talked about how they kind of they, he kind of talked to them a lot, especially Jaden Hardy, which is everybody's, you know, all the fans' favorite Mav now is Jaden Hardy. Uh, so I, I think that any any when he was on the floor, he was very good. Uh, so I, I can't blame any of this on him. The fact that he doesn't play any defense, I mean, that's just who he is, and, and it's, just, it's what Luca is, and that's part of the problem is that by if you want to fault management for this, obviously, uh, you know, the defense was already not doing well when they made the trade in the first place, and it obviously didn't get any better after they traded him. Uh, but now instead of having to protect one superstar who can't play defense, they got to protect two, uh, yeah. and that's just it's just too much. And so. So what they have clearly done, what the Mavericks have, have figured out in their heads is that this is not Kyrie's fault and it's not Luka's fault, even though Luka had his best season you know, statistically. We can still say that there were issues that he was not prepared uh, you know, physically to handle that. And I think that Jason Kidd alluded to that when he kept referring to the marathon of a season, uh, which I thought was kind of like a subliminal message to Luka that, hey, man, you got to get in better shape and be ready to play in an entire season at a very high level. Uh, but the the issue is, is that, hey, it's not these two guys' fault. It's everybody else's fault. And we got to surround these two guys with much better role players. Guys are going to play defense. Guys are going to make up for all this. And, of course, they thought they were getting something along those lines, or at least they thought they were getting rebounding when they went out and, and uh, traded for Christian Wood and then added JaVale McGee. Bust and bust. Uh, and that probably – if we're going to talk about moves that were made that were not or were counterproductive, it was really those two moves. You know, you you got nothing out of either one of those guys. Uh, and now I'm I'm sure Christian Wood will walk. They're going to be stuck with JaVale McGee because of his contract. Um, so this will be very interesting to me to see how they put this all together now, uh, because I think they will uh, bring back Irving if he can't get another deal. The question is, is, you know, does he want to come back? He, he didn't hang around for the exit interviews after the game, which, you know, you, you can read into it what you want. Was he, is that his message that I'm not doing this? Or is it, you know, I don't care. You know, I just don't, I don't want to talk to you guys. I don't have to. So I'll move on. Well, it didn't benefit him to talk, right? Because you're not going to, um, his leverage is to keep the franchise wondering. Oh, for sure. You know? I, I think I, there's no question about that. And I think that they have to wonder about what that is. Uh, and look, every everything went fine with, with Kyrie, you know, while he was here from his standpoint. But for a very short period of time, yes. A very short period of time. And he has to do that, right? He had yes. to make nice. He has to play nice because he knows what his reputation is. He knows what the narrative is. And so if he comes in and then lives up to that and blows everything up, well, then – He's going into a contract season. Value. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's got no value. So uh, I think that the as soon as he gets a contract, if it's a if it's a four or five year deal, well, then all bets are off. You just don't know what you're going to get then, uh, and, and what he's going to be like, and how he's going to act. And then plus, if you give him that deal, how long is he going to be here? Is it going to be is it going to be two years or three years before he backs out and says, "I don't, hey, I want out of here." But the organization knew all of this when they made the trade and they willingly accepted all of these unknowns for the talent grab. And they have to live with the consequences here. And if this doesn't work out, 
it's not Kyrie's fault. They knew they knew who they were dealing with here. They knew. Uh, well, if you want to talk I about the hubris, of all, he'll as, sign for us. I don't go nearly as deep as you guys on any of this stuff. And from my perspective and the way I looked at it, this was a trade because the, the West was open to be won. This was the best talent out there. And I looked at it from day one as the equivalent of a you know an MLB trade deadline rental. You were getting this guy to try and put you over the top and take advantage of a weak Western Conference this year. And you can blame it on whoever you want. You can blame the failure on whoever you want, but it's been an epic failure. And I don't know that you could you could come up with a trade deadline deal that had worse short-term outcomes in any sport than this. So uh, whether yeah, it, it, it didn't work, and you're right, it didn't work. As we were saying, it's not, it was not – I mean, Kyrie it was the player they thought he was going to be. I'm not know? assigning blame anywhere here. I'm just saying I no. think that you have to go back and say this is the reason we acquired him. Yeah. We acquired him for this stretch run. This did not accomplish what you wanted to do. And so from my perspective, I think you have to say step back and go back to square one. I, I don't know – that just simply running him and Luca out there again next year is the answer because I don't know what you're going to add to that. Well, they got to add defense to that, uh, and they got to add rebounding to that, and they're they're going to have to to find a lot. I think then it's like uh, you know, uh, Mark Cuban said it's easier to find that than it is to find a star or, or to find a, the second star and all the rest of it. And, and of course, that's that is true, uh, but the problem is is that. You know, so this is, and then I'm going to try to end on this because we got to get going to our other segments. But Nico Harrison has had two seasons in the books now. The first one, he makes a midseason trade when he, he gets rid of Kristaps Porzingis' contract and brings in Spencer Didwitty and, and Davies Bertans, and and Bertans is, is a cipher. But uh, but Spencer Didwitty was very good. They made that deal and they immediately clicked and went on and went to the Western Conference Finals. It was just a, a you know, I thought it was a bad trade. It's a great trade. It, the chemistry was great. Everything worked. Everything great was short-term perfect. trade. Right. Oh, it was great. They make a big trade. This one and nothing goes right. And plus, if you if you put on the the JaVale McGee and Christian Wood deals, those are bad ones. So he's got one really good year under his belt, and he's got one really bad year under his belt. And what does that mean going forward for this franchise? Do we trust Nico Harrison and Mark Cuban? to put together something going into next year to salvage all this. Cause I got to tell you, uh, my feeling is, is that the, the problem with this franchise is that Mark Cuban has no idea on, a, on about putting together. This is a Mavericks team. This is what we are. This is, you know, you look at the Spurs and Greg Popovich and RC Buford. This is the kind of teams they build. You know, you, you know what kind of teams they build. These are the kind of players they look for. They've always had that. Mark's just looking for stars. Hey, how, can, can we get a star here? And, it, and he's always been uh, fascinated by that. And it's gotten him into a lot more trouble than not in his history as the owner of, of, the, of the Mavericks. All right. That's going to do it for our Mavericks segment. Now, now we're going to move over. Hey, and I, just, about- I have one. Th- I, I, want a, I want a yes or no answer from you guys. Oh, my gosh. Can we move on? I, want, I, I just want a yes or no answer. What? Or, or not even a yes or no. Is there anybody in the management of the Mavericks from the owner on down that looked in any way accountable in any of this? Well, I mean, you got to assume that, first of all, Mark 
Mark did come out and say, I blew it and, and all of that last week. But when he said that, he was talking about, oh, I just didn't account for the take foul, the, the ramifications of the take foul. Like, come on, Mark. That so did, yes or no, that's not know. why you didn't you couldn't play any defense this year. That's not what it was. Uh, that's just bogus to say that. You know, it, it was Mark's way of saying, okay, I'm going to be accountable here, but but not really. You know, I mean, that, just, that's the thing. I, mean, I guess I'm asking: Does anybody inspire confidence after this after this episode? Well, no. I don't know why you would think that. No, yeah. no one's inspiring any confidence. I'm following your parameters, Evan. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Okay, I like that. It's David's best answer of the of the day. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move over now to the Rangers, who are the feast and famine, feast or famine team of the uh, of Major League Baseball. Uh, if they're not winning by nine runs, they're not winning. Essentially. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want? You want to expand on that, Evan? I mean, what's well, up with I mean, that? They, what's they going have on? played one, you run, one, that? one run game this year, and they won it. Listen, I, I, I they're ten games in. I think the things that stand out for me that have consistently shown up are that the starting rotation has, for the most part, been as advertised. A lot of strikeouts, not a lot of walks. I think they're fourth in Major League Baseball, two turns through the rotation and strike out the walk rate, that's going to pay dividends for them long-term. I think the bullpen has been better than expected. I did not expect Dane Dunning and Cole Reagans to get the number of innings that they've gotten in the first 10 games. Offensively, I don't know that you can make a determination right now because it has been so up and down. And you know, the first two games were outstanding, and then the next seven were were poor offensive outings, and then they've had two good ones. So it, it has been a little bit feast and famine, and I do think it's a little bit early to be making a whole lot of determinations on what you actually have. I will say this. Look, they've played 10 games. They're 6-4. and four. They are in first place in the American League West. They're doing what they need to do, which is find ways to win and get off to a quick start and not get buried. Um, And at the same time, you know, their biggest injury to the big league roster has been the absence of Leody Tavares. And that showed up, I think, in in Chicago a little bit in some of the defensive issues that they had in Chicago. But it's certainly not the, the issues that Houston is dealing with or that Seattle is dealing with. Um, and, and so I would say the only judgment I can make on the Rangers in the first 10 days is that it's the season's gone well for them on every front. I don't know if I'd say every, but it, yeah, it's, it has gone well for them. And because uh, here's, here's the thing, Evan, that we really hadn't talked about is that Jake Odorizzi uh, never threw a pitch. He's not going to throw a pitch this season. He's out. Uh, and at one point he was in the rotation uh, before they finished all their winter moves, and it's just like, eh, just a brief, you know. So that, that you know, if if nothing else, we have seen a little bit of the genius of Chris Young when he added all, all these pitchers to the rotation. Is that I'm going to add a bunch of them. I'm going to, you know, he's getting Jacob Degrom and he's getting Nathan Evaldi, and those are those are really good pitchers. Uh, but I'm just going to get a bunch of them here because I know this is it's not all going to work out, and and it's already paid off. I mean, he's. Uh, that Odorizzi was supposed to be <clears throat> what Dane Dunning and, and Cole Reagans are right now, right? He was supposed to be the guy coming in and mopping up uh, and and doing that, and maybe even I think that he was under the impression he was going to be a, a, a six starter, um, but uh, that didn't work out at all. And it's just like no big deal. And, and no, to no, me, no, these, 
this is the mark of a of a this is the mark of a winning franchise when something like that can happen and it just doesn't mean anything. Well, again, you you know, ten games in, everybody's made their starts. You haven't had any trip ups late yet. Dunning and Reagans have both looked like if they need to step into the rotation, they certainly can give you adequate work. Okay. But I think that that just goes back to the mantra of Chris Young all off season saying over and over again to the point where people got tired of hearing it, but you can never have enough pitching. Um, and now he's, he, he's done that. The next step I think for the Rangers here is at the minor league level. And I've got to see Cole win and Jack Leiter and that next wave really take step forwards this year so that if they do now get an injury that's going to cost them some innings at the big league level because somebody's going to have to step up from the bullpen. One of those two guys is going to have to step up from the bullpen. The Rangers are probably still going to have to cover some innings in the bullpen, and it's going to have to be a guy that's a multi-inning guy. So I need to see those minor leaguers start to step up. That's how you – that's how you can, that's continuity right there. That's the stability that you need to see. Um, Lighter's fastball was better in his first start of the year. Uh, I think he struggled a little bit with his breaking ball, but the end result was three walks and two homers. Cole Wynn did not do well in his first AAA start this year. So I, I want to see that at the minor league level. At the major league level, uh, listen, I'm just impressed with the way Bruce Bochy can run a bullpen. I think he's I, I I think it's not just about leverage index and it's not just about batter pitcher um, uh, metrics. I think there is some element of feel involved and it feels to me even in the losses like he has just made the right move every time. Maybe part of that is, you know, a word that I use way too much is narrative because the guy has the reputation of being really good with the bullpen. But I think when he's needed to go to the bullpen, he's made all the right moves. It's it, the one game that got away from him in Chicago was a game where the defense was, you know, was a bunch of butchers. It was it had nothing to do with the pitching staff. Was it five errors in that game? Yeah, and there should have been at least six. Yeah, yeah. five five official errors. That was yeah. The most brutal game to watch. Uh, it was a Wrigley game. I mean, it, 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 you know, the wind was was blowing around a little bit. You had a guy in right field who should not be playing right field. God bless Robbie Grossman. He just shouldn't be playing right field out there. Um, I think, you know, it, it showed up that Adolis is a better right fielder than he is a center fielder. Um, and you're going to have games like that. And you are going to get blown out once in a while. But I think, by and large, this team has – if you looked at the schedule right now and said where should the Rangers be, it'd be hard for me to say that they'd be any that they should be any better than six and four. Well, um, the, the three and zero start, you know, covered a lot of sins. So that sure. that, that enabled them to, to look better. I would say that they have looked good enough uh, since then, uh, since the three and zero start. Um, a little bit disappointing in, in the fact that they got such little offensive production for the most part. But uh, let's look at some other areas here about, about this, Evan, as we go forward. You know, you, you brought up the fact of, about the, the young pitchers and the, and the minor leagues and what they're going to do. I got to tell you, I don't think they're going to have any factor, any impact on this season. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that Chris Young has shown his hand. I think he's, I think he's decided that uh, unless those guys down there are just lighting it up, so to speak, uh, that they'll just stay down there. 
and, they, and, and he will work to get them right and get them ready for next year if that's going to be an impact. But if this team is a contender, which it looks like it can be a contender, I think he'll make moves at the deadline, and I think he'll, he'll make moves to, to fortify the bullpen because uh, I'm – you know how that is. Early in the season, things can go well, and and, and then uh, a bullpen can go up and down and all sideways and do all kinds of things over the course of the year, and especially if it's getting used a lot. It doesn't matter how good you are at running it, and, of course, Bruce is very good at it. Uh, I would expect that might be a, a big move for them to add a big piece for that bullpen. But I just feel like that Chris is going to, uh, at, from, from this point forward, the more the, the Rangers win, the more they sit on top of the West, the more problems that the Astros and Mariners have and the Angels continue to be the Angels. Uh, I think he's going to look at this like this is our opportunity. I'm not about to turn this over to any kids. Uh, oh, 100%. But, Kevin, you've got to get to July. Before you can before you can make those deals, you've got to get to July. Oh, absolutely. He's not doing anything now. No, no, no. And no, all no, I'm no. saying is, you know, yeah. you yeah. have ta- by taking Odorizzi out, you have limited your your pit your starting rotation pool by by one, and right. you never want to just assume that oh we'll we'll have enough. You'd like to see guys at the minor league level start to take step forward to say okay if we do get into a pinch here sometime in June, we'll have somebody to cover us for a couple of starts. And yeah, that's and, and, the and one I, thing I, I haven't see seen. Yeah, I but it's see early, that sure. I mean it's it's exceptionally early. I think to your point, you would like to see Simeon and Seeger get off to to better to, to quicker starts. Um, I think Seeger's hit the ball really, really well. I think he's had a little bit of bad luck. He got his first home run last night, um, and I think Simeon, you know, has started to find he, the last two games here and the last game in Chicago. He got some ground ball hits that you know have really brought his average back up. And so I think when April is over and done, you're going to say. Marcus Simeon had a quicker April than he's had for much of his career, all things considered. Well, that was such a terrible start last year. Just anything would be an upgrade over that. So, uh, so Evan, uh, we, we look around this team and, uh, and we look what he's doing here. And I, I will say uh, the, when he injected Bubba Thompson and uh, Travis Jankowski into the lineup, and really I think obviously it's just what you were saying, that Robbie Grossman, not only did he have problems in, in Wrigley, he had problems at, at Globe Life uh, when the when the roof was open. I mean, God bless it. He just it was just a mess out there. Him playing right field, and he doesn't have a, a good arm, and so teams are running on him. Uh, it's it was really brutal for him to be playing right field. He needs to be playing left field. But one of the things that we have seen from Bruce Bochy, and I think that we've talked, we may have talked about this before, and or at least he talked about it, was that. When things are going well, he rides it, uh, and, and I like that. You know, it's like uh, – so Bubba Thompson has a great game. It's a triple and a double uh, in Chicago, and he's back in the lineup uh, the next day. Uh, well, and so was Travis Jankowski, for that matter. Uh, and, and i got to tell you, i got to interrupt you here on this because yeah? the bottom line is you watch Travis Jankowski during spring training, and listen, there was no way – that he should have made the roster based on performance. It was simply the idea that the Rangers needed an extra body and he was around. They needed somebody who could go out and play the outfield a little bit. He was around. Did not hit the ball with any authority whatsoever in spring training. Bubba, there were real concerns about the lack of contact during spring training. Uh, 
and here they go. You know, they don't get a week's, they go a week without an at-bat, and they come out and they provide instant offense. The game, the game can sometimes defy logic and defy explanation. And it's also not like Travis Jankowski absolutely laced those two doubles. The, the, the doubles, both opposite field doubles, were just kind of hit where, where hitters weren't. But when you do get a contribution, you want to you want to you want to press your bet a little bit, but you also need to know when you're going to pull things back. And I think that's what Bochi is a really good. Um, he's really good at navigating that. Yeah, I think so too. And I, and I, you know, I I have to tell you, you know, it was like the decision about uh, well, they could have brought Leone Tavares back sooner. Uh, and they they did they decided not to do that. Let's let Bubba you know play out here. He just had this game, and I and I I thought that was obviously the the, the decision to make at that point. Why rush Leoti back at that point? It's not like he'd done anything in his rehab that to make you think, oh yeah, he's really ready to go. So I, I, these guys are kind of all on the same level to me. You know, I, I I'm not any bigger fan of Leoti than I am of Bubba. I think they I see what both of their strengths are, and I see what their weaknesses are. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, it's, it's just like, or Ezekiel Duran for that matter, or Josh Smith, anybody, any of these guys, I, I, the, the leg up I gave Robbie Grossman was that he was a veteran, you know, and this is, this is good. And he's got some pop and this will be good. He can play left field. Well, yeah, maybe he can play left, but he can't play right field. We know that now. Uh, so, uh, I, I think that, you know, at this point, I, I, I'm not sure who to bet on. In all this, Evan, you know, in the in the question between center field and left field, and it's kind of a of everything that's gone right for the Rangers up to this point. You know, that was the big thing. The issue was to find a left fielder, and then now they need to find a left fielder and a center fielder. Like, who's going to end up winning this uh, this little race? Yeah, I, I I think that's to be determined. But I do really feel like the the I feel like the mood changed. Um, between Saturday and Sunday, because they were going to reevaluate Leody after after Sunday, um, and by the time I got down there and, and asked Bochi, there was a whole lot of, well, we want to make sure that he's got enough at bats, and we want to make sure he's ready. And I think that the feeling was, we can maybe cover ourselves for a few more days with this, and and maybe the message also goes to Leody, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have some competition when you get back here. So I don't know that there's an answer yet on who wins any of these. Clearly you'd like to see Leody win it because he's got the most experience. But there is, when Bubba gets on the bases, he's an impact player. The question on that is whether or not he can get on the bases enough. And if he's making contact, it's really going to improve. It's going to increase his stock. So, Bubba has done everything that he needs to do in his little two-game stint here to to get more playing time, and I think it buys the Rangers. It, it's the way, the best way to phrase it is it buys the Rangers a little bit more time to get Leody right, so that when he does come back, he's in the best position to be an impact player and not just trying to to tread water. Yeah, I'm. Uh, like I said, I'm. I can see them going either way here with, with Bubba or Leody. I, I see what they do well. And the, the question I have between those two is I, I like Bubba's makeup better, I think. Uh, I, I just I, – I know where Bubba's coming from when he plays. I know that he's all in. Uh, 
I don't think that he's spacing out out there like Leody does in center field. Bubba had a, when they put him in for defense first game of the season, I think it was Bubba had a curious route in center field. He also made a catch at the wall in center field. His speed can make up for some route issues. And the same thing happens with Leody. There's times when his speed makes up for some route issues, but there's time because he's played more than Bubba that those, those things show up. Neither one of them is a perfect player. I do think when you take the speed factor into it and what Bubba can do on the bases, he really can give you an asset um, that is at a, at a different level. The question on that, Kevin, is the same thing I came back to when I, on Sunday, that the Rangers are ultimately going to have to make this decision. Is Bubba's best way to help this team as a fourth outfielder and runner that they can place late in games. And the unfortunate part for them is in the first 10 games, they didn't have a whole lot of opportunities to place him as a runner to get that added advantage. Or do they view him as an everyday player? And if they view him as an everyday player, he's going to have to get every day at bats, whether that's in the big leagues or in the minor leagues. All right, before we get out of this Rangers segment, I want to talk really quickly about the job that Andrew Heaney did. We didn't even mention the fact that he he tied a record, a club record of, uh, for consecutive strikeouts at nine. He shared with uh, – I, I don't even want to count Joe Barlow. That's over two games. No, I'm not counting. No, it's a starter record. It's a starter record. He tied a record set by – a club record set by Nolan Ryan in 1991. You know, he, he doesn't throw hard, uh, but, of course, the thing you see with him, and, I, and I'm sure that the spin rate much – must be off the charts because I remember once talking to a, for a story, Steve Dalkowski, a legendary pitcher in the Orioles uh, organization was considered the hardest thrower ever. And he was just a mess in his personal life. And that's one of the reasons why he never made it. He was incredibly wild. But when I talked to him over the phone, he, he talked about how he would go to parks and watch guys pitch. And he said, I want to see the ball rise. Uh, and he said that, that no one ever did that. That's what his ball did. So I'm, I'm guessing that Dalkowski, one of the reasons why he was so uh, hard to hit uh, when he did get the ball over was that he must have had tremendous spin rate on the ball. You know, Heaney's throwing 92, 93, and he, and he gets, you know, nine strikeouts in a row. And it looks like that ball is r- really rising. Uh, it's, but he, and he throws up in the zone anyway a little bit, and it really was effective for him. Yeah, I mean, I, he's a guy who's a, you know, he's a big deception guy and a big spin guy. And um, he had some trouble late in spring kind of getting down the mound. And when, you, when you're when you relying on deception and spin, you've got to make everything look the same and you've got to really get down the mound going towards home plate. And he was falling off. He worked hard to try and get back online. Last night he did a great job. Again, you know, we've got two starts of the regular season to kind of evaluate on. I don't want to put too much into how the guy fared against the the Kansas City Royals because they're not going to be a great club. I think they are susceptible to strikeouts. But it certainly was a big step forward for him, a really nice night for him. And it does feel like – it just feels like this rotation every time out, you feel like you're going to have a chance to win. You're not going to get swamped early even if these guys struggle you're not going to be swamped so early that you don't have a chance to win well they, because they strike out so many guys they always can get themselves out of trouble well, the strikeout gives them the opportunity to get out of two out of two out situations that you know you don't have to rely on the defense and we see 
what, you know, sometimes relying on the defense can lead to as it did to in Chicago. They have a weapon that other Ranger pitching staffs simply did not have. Yeah, no question about that. All right, that's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. We're going to move over now and talk about uh, the draft, the NFL draft, which comes up, uh, David, April the 27th. Is that the first day of the draft? First day, yeah. Uh, Three-day three day event last Thursday of the month, and you go from there. Yeah, and uh, and of course, it's always a, always a fun time. You know, when I was growing up, David, uh, as a little sports fan in Houston, which was, you know, it's a, it's a wonder I even made it to adulthood being a sports fan in Houston in the 60s and 70s because, you know, they were just determined to break your heart and make stupid trades. And, and I, I've always enjoyed the team-building aspect of sports, uh, the idea of, of trades and signings and whatever as a kid. <clears throat> I always loved that, and I wish that Speck Richardson of the Astros would have enjoyed it as much. Nobody uh, loves but, trades as much as you, Kevin. Yeah, nobody. And I, I don't. I don't think they do. I just like the the possibilities. It's always fun to think about what what can they do here. So, uh, uh, I think ca- I think Evan also wants to ask when did you actually reach adulthood? The, well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I like well, that. I, I like the fact that a long, long time ago. <laughs> I, I went to a funeral yesterday for a, for a 94 year old woman. She was terrific, and uh, uh, and someone's they, uh, one of the the friends of of uh, one of her grandchildren said she was always the youngest person in the room. And I thought, what a great thing to say about somebody, especially when they're 94. What a, what a great compliment. I wish I had a thought of something like that to say. It was uh, really terrific. So that's a good thing. So uh, so we got the the draft coming up. Uh, we have. A lot more confidence in the Cowboys in the draft these days, don't we, David, than we used to in the, in the years after Jimmy left after 1995 and, and just what a disaster it was for pretty much most of the next 10 years or so. The, that was it should, the- I think. This has been an extended stretch of, um, uh, again, everyone's eyes glaze over at this point, and you'll hear it more leading up to the draft and through the draft on we're a draft and develop team. But uh, that's – they, they walk the walk on that. Uh, this team, uh, the nucleus of this team, by and large, has been drafted. The key players have been signed to second contracts. Uh, the, the nucleus and the reason this team is 12-5 and five in back-to-back seasons is because of their ability to identify talent, uh, plug it into their system, and, and go from there. And this is also a more cost-effective approach, too, right? Because you you do have to make difficult decisions along the way and go, okay, yeah, Dalton Schultz was a productive player for us, but do we, and if we pay him this money, we're keeping ourselves short in other spots. Do we need to pay this money or do you say, well, no, we don't because we drafted Jay Ferguson and Peyton Hendershot last year. And this is an outstanding draft for tight ends. So we have confidence in our ability to fill this position out the way we need to do it and in a more cost-effective way. So we, you let Dalton Schultz go and, and the, you know, what he signed for, and uh, you have that to balance your roster. And I would say, and actually I would say, this is the most balanced roster the Cowboys have had in a long, long time. You have uh, – playmakers on both sides of the ball at key positions at good age. And, and, and you're seeing the age of this team is being staggered. Well, uh, you know, there's some key veterans in place, but you go back over the last two seasons. The other thing on draft and develop is Dallas had the 
youngest or second youngest playoff of the playoff teams had the first or second youngest roster over the last two seasons in the postseason after going 12 to five in back-to-back years. That is that is laying the groundwork for at least an extended playoff run that potentially gives them a chance to to break the ceiling they've been unable to break here over the last 27 years, which is to get back to the NFC Championship game and farther. So our old pal Tim Callishaw uh, wrote a column that's uh, posted. Uh, Speak for saying, yourself, but go ahead. Okay. Uh, about the pal part, yeah. Um, that that why in the world would the Cowboys consider drafting B. John Robinson, the Texas running back, who's considered by far the best running back in this draft, the best running back, you know, maybe not as good a prospect as Jonathan Taylor was when he came out of college or Saquon Barkley when he came out, uh, but a very good one nonetheless, uh, a very complete back, uh, a guy very good catching the ball out of the backfield. Um, There's been a lot of speculation. He's been basically considered a top five talent in this draft. But he's not going to go that high because he is a running back and because that position has been downgraded so much in the NFL. Um, but I have to say, having said all of that, and I get it, and I understand that you can find running backs anywhere. The, the Cowboys found Tony Pollard in the fourth round, right? Sure. So, yes, across the league, you can find those kind of backs anywhere. But I, I will say, if I, I would not trade up for him, if Bijan Robinson was available at 26. You bet I would take him. Uh, and, and, and the reason I say that is because two things. One, uh, the, you've, you've pretty much plugged all the holes that you you, you meant to plug to begin with, right, uh, in, in free agency and the signings you made and the trades. And everything was really well done by the Cowboys and laying the groundwork for that. And two, do we really believe that Tony Pollard is going to be back to form? And he is tagged on a one-year deal. He has never been the featured back, and even in college, he was not that. I think there's still enough that we don't know about Tony Pollard that if Bijan Robinson presents the possibility there at 26, then yeah, I think I would do that. One, I don't see any scenario that he's there at 26. I just think he's too good of a player. And you can talk about the bias at running back and how uh, you can get a very you know, good running back in the second, third, even fourth round. All of that is true, but there is such a separation here. I, I just don't see him getting to 26. If he did get to 26, to me, it's a no-brainer. You do it. Uh, you need another. Yeah, Tony Pollard is your main guy, but you've already seen you have to split the load with him, right? They need yeah. someone about the same amount of carries, at least. And, and, this would be about adding another playmaker who gives you an immediate impact and makes your offense better. Uh, to me, it's a no-brainer you would do it. Uh, and there's a big difference in if a, if the best running back in the class by far and by consensus slides to you at 26, that's a lot different than uh, taking a running back at four which is what the Cowboys did with Ezekiel Elliott. Um, yeah. the, the financial investment's much different. Uh, the, the fact to control uh, that, that guy for another year, a fifth-year contract, uh, which is about the time where you see running backs start to slide off, you know, 
yeah, I, I think they would take more of the DeMarco Murray approach, you know, DeMarco Murray approach there where they would be skeptical of the second contract uh, more so than they were with Elliott. But no, to me, that's a no brainer. The other though, uh, I know you want to talk about some other positions. I think it's imperative uh, that the Cowboys come out of this draft with another running back. And, and I would be shocked if they don't take one. Uh, you know, a, a few other names to keep in mind. The, the second best back is Jamar Gibbs from Alabama. Uh, really good pass catcher, quite a burst. That's another guy. Uh, you know, Zach uh, Charbonnet, uh, UCLA back. And, and then when you start getting in the third round, potentially fourth, you're looking at guys like a Zach Evans, an old Miss guy who is a, a very powerful uh, runner and would be a good complement uh, to what Tony Pollard does. Yeah, that's the thing about uh, the, the running back position for me with Tony Pollard. I, I think that we, we look at metrics all the time and we see yards after contact and how good Tony's were last year. I'd like to see how they quantify contact. Is, is contact reaching out and getting a hand on a guy's thigh as he runs by? That's not contact to me, you know, and I think that's what Tony does. There were too many times last year, in tough situation, he gets hit by somebody, he goes down like he was dropped, uh, like somebody dropped a sack of groceries. I mean, it's just boom. There's there's not much power there. He's a very odd runner. I'm, 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 a, I'm a fan of Tony Pollard. I think he was really good, and, he's, and he certainly gives you an element – the home run he gives you is is tremendous, but the idea that this guy's going to go out there and you're going to stick it in his stomach, it's a little bit like Eric Metcalf, right? When, when he came out, you know, it, it, even when, when Eric Metcalf was at Texas, Fred Akers tried to make him into the kind of running back where you turn around and stick the ball in, your, in his stomach and here we go. You just couldn't do that with him. That's not who he was. And I'm not sure that's who Tony Pollard is either. So that's another reason to be thinking about adding that yeah. other. I think, and, I think you're and, absolutely and, right. You have to add one. Somewhere at the you have to. There are too many good young backs. This is a good draft for running backs. Uh, not at the top of the draft, but uh, you can get some really good value there. Second, third, fourth round. I would be shocked if the Cowboys don't draft a running back in, in rounds two, three, or four. If uh, if things don't work for them in the first round. All right. Let me ask you this then. So we, we've seen. Uh, we talked a little bit about this last week in the offensive line and what they're going to do and how they're going to what Tyron Smith is going to end up playing. Is he going to be the right tackle? Is he going to be a swing tackle? What happens with Terrence Steele? Is Terrence Steele going to go over and play left guard or not? Uh, I, I've seen Osiris Torrance, uh, who's considered, I guess, the if he's not the best guard in the draft, he's right up there, and he would be available probably at 26. It's a lot of the mock drafts now have him sliding into the second round, actually, at this point. Do you think that the idea that they could get a guy who would step in and start at, right, at, at left guard – would be an overriding factor in, in their decision? Well, they would look at it. You know, Cyrus Torrance uh, from Florida, uh, uh, from, from what I can, you know, from, from talking to people, he's probably the one plug-and-play starter that everyone feels confidence about, you know, that that's a first-round guy. Um, and, you know, you go into the second round, maybe the, the John Michael Schmitz from Minnesota, uh, who is very good in the senior bowl, uh, and, and that's a center, um, you know, and th- then you go in the third where I think it may be a little more likely where you look for some guys. But if you're looking interior, the offensive line, Torrance, it sounds like, is really the only interior player uh, that potentially is going to go. And he's, uh, he's a name to keep in mind there because, again, it's going to be – remember that the Cowboys are at 26. Um, normally, in most years – 
they don't have more than 19 to 20 first round grades. Uh, and usually it's in that range of like 17 to 21 uh, as far as the number of first round grades they give. So there's a good chance when they're on the clock, none of the players with their first round grade are there. Uh, but if they do have a first round grade on a Torrance and he's the only first rounder on their board, uh, they've really put themselves in position. Uh, they can just go with the best uh most talented player, irregardless of position in the first round. And uh, I think there's there's a, certainly a chance they would do that. Okay, so uh, we, so they, they, they beefed up their receiving core here, and, uh, and that is not the, the same issue that it was before. But they, they brought in several wide receivers for look-sees uh, out at the star. So, David, go over those really quickly, and what do you think about the prospects that any one of those guys uh, might end up? being a pick to me that was a little surprising from the standpoint of um you know these receivers are are in that range but when you really they're justified on that grouping but we're, we're talking about how the you know the the cowboys can just draft irregardless of position but I would actually argue taking a receiver in the first is really far down the list of, of uh, as far as like a return on investment for this first season on what they could get from, from where they are. And remember, they still, uh, while he didn't do anything, they still have a third round pick in Tolbert last year who would they anticipate would make some uh, major strides this season uh, unless they missed on that and, and the jury is still out on that. But yeah, I, it surprised me because uh, some of the 30 visits, you know, that have come out have been Zay Flowers, um, Jalen Hyatt from Tennessee, and Quentin Johnson, the receiver from TCU. All of them have been in for visits on, on the 30 visits. And, um, you know, those are guys uh, that potentially will be in that range. And um, so, so they've all been out. So you have to keep them in now. Now, the, the best receiver in this draft, they have also visited, but he's from Rockwall, so they didn't have to use a 30-visit on him. That's uh, Jackson Smith from uh, Ohio State, uh, a guy with, you know, not a burner, but just terrific ball skills, um, you know, missed a lot of this season due to injury, but is regarded as the top receiver in this class. And it's interesting. I, I think, you know, I think we become conditioned to how the game is to where, anywhere from four to seven or eight receivers go in the first round uh, because of the way uh, the, the game is played now. But I'm starting to hear rumblings that, that this draft class at receiver isn't as strong at the top as other years, and you may not see that many receivers go in the, in the first round. Well, that's interesting. Uh, and I, I would think it would be disappointing to do that as well. Plus, you're just kind of setting yourself up for a mess here to me when you draft a wide receiver in the first round. You've already you've already did, did that with C.D. Lamb. You're going to have to pay for that pretty soon. Yeah. And then, yep. you're, then you're on the heels of that, you would be paying for this next first round pick at some point. So I, I, I would like to see them. You know, it all you just gave Gallup the money. Yeah. Now you'll yeah. be into it, but yeah, mm-hmm. you've invested a lot of money in all that. So uh, would they would they take a tight end, David? Do you think this high? At 26? That's the question, right? And this is an outstanding draft class for uh, for tight ends. And there are really four uh, from when you talk to people that have first-round grades on them. 
that's uh, the the best all around tight end is probably Michael Meyer, the Notre Dame tight end. Uh, he's a true you know inline blocker. Also works the middle of the field, makes some tough contested catches. Uh, Luke Musgrave from Oregon State, a good combo uh, size and speed. Uh, Darnell Washington from Georgia, uh, a big guy, uh, outstanding blocker. Uh, would really help you in the run game, which is one of their stated goals, and uh, has an upside as a pass catcher. And uh, Dalton Kincaid from Utah, who may be the best pure receiver in that group. Uh, any of those four, the idea of plugging them in with Ferguson and Hendershot, um, I think is very attractive to them. And and I would really argue because of the talent that getting of tight end in the first round would diversify the Cowboys' offense and make it more difficult for defenses to get pre-snap reads on what they're going to do more so than another receiver. So I, I think, I think yes, I think that is in the wheelhouse of consideration. What about a quarterback, David? I believe a quarterback will be taken in the third day of the draft. You're not, you're not going in the first round? You're, you're not going not to Probably take not first round. No. Probably not the first two days, I would think, is highly unlikely. I don't think any of those guys who are projected to go in the first round or would be available even at 26 anyway. Right? No, no. And and that is the position that you talk about running backs being devalued, quarterbacks are overvalued and will go higher uh, than, they're actually ta- than their actual talent dictates in the draft and, and have done so for years, and that will continue to be the case. Yeah, uh, this will be very interesting to me. Is and of course we'll talk about this more as the as the draft gets closer and about uh, possibilities and what they might do and in trading. And at some point, I want to us to talk about just that the idea of would would Jerry trade up? Would he trade down? You know, uh, he, he he learned a lot of lessons from from Jimmy about trading down, and all of them were bad. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy was really good at it. Jerry was terrible at it. Uh, his worst drafts were the ones where he traded out of the first round. Uh, and you, you you think that's a kind of a self fulfilling prophecy, but he, if if you're good at adding players later in the second, third, and fourth round where you picked up those picks, then it's okay. The Cowboys weren't any good at that. Uh, they're getting better at it all the time with Will McClay running these drafts. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for our Cowboys segment of uh, this podcast. We just want to throw out there really quick that of course coming up uh, we're going to have uh, as the stars get closer to the playoffs here, we're going to have Chuck Carlton uh, on with us hopefully, who's now covering the stars for us in their playoff push. Um, and we're also going to talk about golf uh, next week here as the, uh, we just of course had the masters and had two top 10 finishes by local Dallas products, Jordan, Jordan Spieth and Scotty Scheffler, who was the defending champion at uh, Augusta national. Uh, we had some bad news with the, the third uh, end of that little Troika who was Will Zalatoris. Once again, had back surgery and is out for the year. Uh, a really uh, sad development for him. Fine young man and golfer. Um, you know, he weighs about 110 pounds. I don't know. Uh, and and I, I just think that he puts so much torque on his back at that swing. I, not that I would have predicted that, but once it happened, you just had to say, wow, this, this looks like the kind of guy this could happen to. But when was the last time any of us weighed 110 pounds? Well, there there was a time when I was really, you know, growing up, I was always the smallest kid in my class, smarter than most of the girls. 
uh, which you know I, I don't want to sound chauvinistic there, but that was not a that was not a good thing. Uh, it's not yeah, a selling well, point at that age in that era. No, it is. It was not. Uh, I, I Kevin, what was the one room schoolhouse experience like? <laughs> well, you know, uh, once once I was on a bus and I had a big case with me. It was in junior high, and uh, and I was very small. And this eighth grade girl was standing on the in the bus as well in, in the aisle there, and uh, she's smacking gum. And she turns and looks at me and says with pure contempt, "Little boy." Move your suitcase. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, I have, it has taken me about, I don't know, 60 years to get over that. Uh, yeah, I can I, tell I, you're I, over it now. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah, almost, it sounds like it. Sure. I'm almost there. I am almost there. I'm feeling really good about my prospects at this point. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank everyone for coming out and uh, listening to this uh, fine work done by all our pals. And we'll be back next week, and we'll talk more about the draft. We'll talk more about uh, the stars. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about them at all. We haven't done that up to this point. Now we, need some, we need an expert in here to talk about that, and that's what Chuck Carlton is. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Spoken Layer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.